Hello and welcome to The Sound of Space, a podcast brought to you by the University of Toronto Aerospace Team. Okay, welcome back everyone to TSauce and now we're uh, recording episode 23 actually and this is a very exciting topic because it's kind of new. It's not similar to anything we've talked about before in the last couple seasons. But before I tell you what the topic is, I'm over here with Yusuf today. Hello. So it's me, Theo, and Yusuf. <laughs> yeah. And you've heard Yusuf's voice in the last episode, but it was, you know, maybe not long enough for you to really appreciate what Yusuf has to say because <laughs> we were doing interviews. But here you get to hear a bit more of him. So yeah, so now I'm anything back. Anything to say? Yeah. I'm back. My first one, I'm really excited to talk about space economics. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. So Yusuf just gave it away. We're talking about space economics today, specifically no. kind of like the drivers of space economics. So we're going to start with an overview of major projects that we've touched on before in different episodes, but we're going to talk about the economic side of it now. So some big projects, some budget overruns of more recent projects. We'll talk about things like that as well. We'll also talk about how major accidents in space exploration affect the economy of the space industry as well. And then we're going to go and try to dive a bit deeper into government institutions and also the private sector and try to think about the motivations of why certain companies or agencies are doing the things that they're doing. And maybe we'll throw in some money numbers in there as well for the finance nerds. So let's hop right into it. We're going to start with the Apollo project, which is very famous. And this is kind of where modern space exploration started. And it's also one of the most classical examples of why space is so expensive. For people who know, the official cost of the Apollo program was over $25 billion, which is ridiculous. And that's how they presented it back in like the 70s. If you factor in inflation and all that, the equivalent of how much it cost at that point to how much it would have costed in 2020 is 10 times that much. So over $250 billion. It's kind of ridiculous. And it's the figure that lots of people go back to when they're like, we spend so much, we spend so much, we spend so much. During that period of time when NASA was super focused on the Apollo mission, three out of every $5 that the space program had was going towards this mission. And that was mostly because the Kennedy administration was super you know, focused on getting humans back to the moon not back to the moon, to the moon for the first time. And <laughs> now we're trying to go back to the moon. So Artemis is, you know, the successor of the Apollo program. And that's what we hear a lot about right now. But at the end of the day, it was very, very expensive. And something to note, and this is what upsets a lot of people, is that that was taxpayer money. And it also came from other government revenues as well. And the costs grew significantly when they started in the late 60s up until the early 70s. And that kind of matched up with the U.S. public's dislike towards just the government in general or expenditures towards this nerdy spaceflight stuff resulted in a lot of budget cuts for NASA moving forward past the Apollo program. So that kind of sets up the scene of where NASA's been since then. Still doing a lot of things, but not to the extent of over $25 billion. Yeah, and so I feel like it's really interesting yeah. because people, like as we look back on the Apollo missions, we have a sort of pride as like like we as humans we have done that but we fail to sometimes remember how those people were at the time and what they thought of it as a complete waste of money not unlike how a lot of people right now in the u.s might see the u.s's foreign policy and where they put their money as a waste of taxpayer money however in the future they might see it as differently so moving on to the space shuttle program 
Space Shuttle program, in a nutshell, was an attempt to make spaceflight more economically viable using reusable rockets instead of the disposable ones that were used uh, in the Apollo missions and all the missions before that. It was mainly started for research in microgravity and satellite deployment, uh, along with space station construction and national security. It was, it was a really expensive project. NASA spent in total $10.6 billion on the Space Shuttle program, which is like $50 billion today, which is not a small amount. That's probably the GDP of like more than the GDP of like half of today's countries or something. I, I don't know. $50 billion is crazy. So that's a yeah. lot of money just to like, I don't know, send some space planes. So they were cool space planes. They are very You should cool listen to our planes. episode on unconventional space vehicles. If you're more interested in the shuttle, we have a whole section about it over there. Yeah, yeah. But I'll stop plugging. No, no, plug away. Like people need to inform themselves on space and what better way to do that rather than yeah. the sound of space so yeah uh, this was directly after the apollo program however there was a little bit of less excitement for space exploration as there was in the apollo program the apollo program like it was an amazing thing and it was a huge feat of engineering but at the end of the day it was just something to stick it to the to the soviets and because the soviets have already put um, a satellite into orbit and the first man into space so the, the Americans had to catch up. So they did the Apollo program. But after that, the people in the U.S. didn't really know why investment in NASA kept continuing, right? Yes. What do you think? Exactly. So yeah, like the excitement was going down. And with the space shuttle, it was also kind of, there was a recurring cost that came with every launch. So they were launching like every few weeks or several times a year. By the end of the program, which was around 2011, so not too long ago, in the last decade, the costs were about like almost 800 million per flight. So just think about that recurring cost as well. And again, like we were talking about, it's still publicly funded projects. And as cool as it is for us, it has a lot of implications on other things. That being said, it's not a huge, like the way NASA spends now, it's not as huge a percentage as it used to be. And with something like the space shuttle program, we'll talk about this a bit later the way that it ended also was a huge driver for how NASA places their money and how just the economics of the entire space industry has moved. Like the space shuttle has a huge, huge part in that. We'll get to that shortly. But next we can talk about the Hubble Space Telescope. So again, all of these things we're talking about, you know, Apollo, Space Shuttle, Hubble, we have other episodes on these. Go listen to them. So we did talk about, you know, space imaging at some point. We do a, a bit of a deep dive into Hubble. So for more details about the technical stuff, if you're interested in that, go listen to that episode. But in terms of the cost, so the Hubble mission cost approximately $16 billion. And that's in terms of like current rates. So that, that's actually adjusted specifically to 2021 dollars. And that's since its official start in the late 70s. Taken that Hubble has been operating for over 30 years now. It is still operational as we speak. Knock on wood that it continues being operational. <laughs> But yeah, like there's there's again that recurring cost, especially when it came to things like they had to launch uh, space shuttles over there to do uh, maintenance. So that that factors into there. And also just like the operators or the people who are synthesizing the data and everything. So if you are interested in the specifics of the funding data, we have a whole, you know, massive PDF with all the charts and everything. If you're interested in that, we're going to link that in the show notes. Go take a look at that. But something else that I'll mention before we move on to the next topic is that the original total costs were supposed to be about like $8 billion. So 
that's something else to take into consideration, unforeseen circumstances that just bump up the prices. And also some unforeseen circumstances that might also bump down the prices. So in this case, for example, ESA, the European Space Agency, got involved. And then once they started supporting, they actually ended up taking about 15% of the funding. So that was another factor that came into play. But yeah, those are some historical things that we could talk about. They had huge implications on money at the time, especially for NASA. But what we're going to talk about next is budget overrun. So these are referring to more recent projects. So I'll let you get started there. We also have the James Webb Space Telescope, which is a huge accomplishment for a lot of scientists and space agencies agree on, considering its purpose and its, and its complexity. If you want to learn more about that, there is also another episode about this. But people don't really know about the history of the James Webb Space Telescope. They kind of just thought that it was a thing that was launched in 2022 and that scientists have been working on, as scientists do in their thing. But did you know that the original budget in 2002, so 21 years ago, was around a billion to 3.5 billion? And that skyrocketed all the way to $10 billion. Their initial launch date of 2010 had to be moved up all the way to 2022. There were a lot of issues and hurdles along the way, for example, with trouble in management and funding and bugs that they encountered and integration with different components. And also in 2018, a whole independent review found critical human errors resulting in further delays and cost increases. So the, the history of the James Webb is not too pretty. However, hopefully the future of it will be better. Knock on wood again. Hopefully our podcast is not doomed. <laughs> yeah, it's not going <laughs> to doomed these two. No, James, yeah. James Webb has been doing great. Another thing I'll add to Yusuf's list of things that ruined uh, the timeline for James Webb was also COVID. Oh, yeah. COVID was a huge one. It pushed things for a lot of us, but it also pushed things for space Nothing is safe well. from COVID. Yeah, exactly. Nothing is the same. Yeah. But yeah, the, the total cost, it went up, like Yusuf said, it started at around a billion, it went up to about 10 billion. So that's like the more recent classic example of very expensive space project, right? Moving on, another huge project that NASA is currently working on is SLS. So that's the space launch system. And that's supposed to be the ship that takes astronauts to the moon and to the lunar gateway once it's built. And so if you're following space news, you'll know that they did their first kind of full test launch, I think late 2022, I think it was November 2022. The money that went into this thing is is crazy. It's currently projected to cost at least $13 billion over 25 years of development. So that's $6 billion more than planned. The development began in 2011, and that's an important year because uh, you'll notice that's when the space shuttle was uh, kind of decommissioned around that time. And that's when they started working on this next thing. On top of that, it also follows the cancellation of what was called the Constellation Program. So the Obama administration canceled that. And the Constellation Program was supposed to be a bridge between what the shuttle was and what we now know like the Artemis Program to be. So it was supposed to be like rockets that would take you to low Earth orbit, so to the ISS, for example, but could also take you to the moon, but could also eventually take you to Mars. So that was the whole idea over there. Lots of things were repurposed from the Canceled Constellation program towards the Artemis program. But that's where some difficulties come along. Because once you're trying to integrate older hardware into newer things, you know, you have all this additional complexity and cost. And 
specific domain knowledge that you have to take care of and everything. They have what's called a cost plus award fee for this. So it kind of means, you know, as as you need money, ask us for money and we give you money, which they're finding is not working too well here. And maybe something that was cost fixed would have pushed them to to do a bit better. You have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I sort of have a bit of an analogy of what they're trying to do. Let's say you have an old Corvette, right? It has, it's got a good engine in it, but like it's, it's starting to rust away a bit and it's not going as fast as you'd like it to. But you have a new Corvette with a slightly worse engine or with no engine for that matter. So the best thing that you could do is take the engine out of the old Corvette and put it in the new shiny Corvette with the AC and whatever. And that's what NASA tried to do. But the problem with that is that sometimes the parts just don't fit and you're going to have to deal with a lot of problems like that. They tried to have a lot of cost-saving initiatives that, that mostly failed because of the scale of all of this. However, Starship from SpaceX has seen a lot of improvement of this. And from what Elon Musk has been able to achieve with that company, that all it really took was a whole reorganization of it from a more traditional commercial structure to more research and development structure where you're not afraid of failure whatever which actually which mm-hmm. actually brings us to the Boeing Starliner. So this so NASA selected Boeing and SpaceX simultaneously in September 2014 to provide crewed flights to the ISS. SpaceX's Crew Dragon saw generally smooth development and had several operation flights already. However, Boeing Starliner suffered a lot of issues in its first couple test flights and failed to even connect with the ISS in 2019. The only test flight afterwards was delayed and there was only one taken and it hasn't... It did successfully dock though. They, oh, it They eventually? did successfully dock it the second time. The second yeah, time, okay. So like, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know about you, but if I was an astronaut and I'm like, I've arrived at my destination in space <laughs> Watching them. and it doesn't like yeah. open the door, then I'm like, okay, like, I guess that's it yeah. for me, you know? <laughs> like... <laughs> <laughs> that's true. No, it's it's actually interesting how you pointed out that NASA picked both of them at the same time, SpaceX and Boeing. But you see the difference in how much SpaceX developed. Like their Dragon crew vehicle is pretty much like the standard for American astronauts now for getting to the space station. Whereas this Starliner hasn't flown with a a crew yet at all. And if you think about it, the money that's going into fixing these things and developing more things and having to do analysis or reviews on, well, why didn't it dock the first time? What do we have to do to qualify? You know, what are we missing? And the the even more interesting thing is the contract that SpaceX got was actually budgeted at 40% lower of the one that oh, wow. Boeing yeah. had. I think they, they did spend a bit more. Like Elon Musk says, they were an order of like hundreds of million dollars more, but they still were less than Starliner at the end of it. And I think that comes down to exactly what you were talking about, where SpaceX is relatively like impulsive and reckless. And we talked about this in the failures episode as well, I think. And we pointed out the difference between the strategies that different companies have. Because SpaceX is like, I don't care, let's blow it up, but let's find out what's wrong, like, quick. Let's not, like, waste time trying to make things perfect and never testing. That's what people always say. They, like, test early and fail early so that you know and you can, you know, push. So, yeah, I guess that's why SpaceX is yeah, yeah. Whereas, whereas kind of, like, coming up to the forefront. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Whereas, whereas Boeing usually has a structured company type thing where, they have a whole system yeah. and they have like these types of engineers for the engine and these types of engineers for the, yeah, for the tanks and these way. types of engineers for propulsion. Yeah. And then they try to like use all their massive resources to create this beautiful thing. 
But because like they're so stuck in their hierarchical system, they don't really get anywhere when it comes to that. Yeah. So the Boeing... And they're in a risky position yeah. right now as well. I'll just add one last thing. They're in a risky position right now because the Starliner launches on the Atlas V rocket, which is supposed to retire very, very soon, actually. They already sold all of their remaining flights before they retire. And it's the Vulcan is supposed to replace it, but it's not ready for humans yet. So now they're in this tricky position where they were too slow to prove their technology. And now they might never be able to, depending mm, on when the ISS yeah. comes down as well. Wow. I mean, naturally, we, we should go on to Airbus was working on or Airbus's co-companies. So looking over to Europe, we're going across the pond. We're looking at the Ariane 6. Initially approved uh, in 2014 for 3.2 billion euros, plus the launch pad valued at 600 million euros. However, in 2015, wishful thinking about cost-cutting contributions from the industry reduced this to just $3 billion. Euros. Sorry, yeah, euros, euros, euros. So development started in 2016 with ESA giving Airbus, later the Ariane Group, the go-ahead. It was planned to begin operations in 2020 so they can begin a seamless transfer from the now-retired Ariane 5 ro uh, rocket. However, technical difficulty, design variations, and policies impact this development. And, you know, our favorite COVID-19 game, slowing everything down. So as of now, we're currently looking at probably a delayed flight of 2024 or later with 1.8 billion euros in subsidies over time having been granted just to keep the project, quote unquote, low cost and competitive, which seems to be a re reoccurring yeah. theme. In, in a lot of these massive projects because we're kind of just throwing around these these billions like like we're kind of just saying oh this billion dollars this billion dollars this billion dollars yeah but when when big governments even spend like half a billion dollars and send it off to somewhere we get really mad so these are not small amounts not at all yeah and something interesting about the Ariane series like you, you'll recognize Ariane 5 so which is now retired that's the uh, launch vehicle that the James Webb Space Telescope went up so it's it's a reliable vehicle and everything but they're a bit behind because like the Ariane rockets are not reusable, which is kind of where the trend is going in terms of rockets. You'll see the way SpaceX is doing it. And even the way the space shuttle was, like the whole point is reusable because this reduces development costs. We don't have to rebuild this thing every time we want to use it. So that's kind of a other like bottleneck. And the Ariane group kind of like claims that a design to answer the question of cost reduction uh, without reusability exists. Um, so it seems like they're following another strategy and they're kind of being resistant to the flow towards reusability but again it's it, it's very interesting like economics is not just about the numbers it's about strategy as well and you'll see how different companies do it different yeah and it yeah spacex keeps coming up because they're doing it in a way that's at the forefront they're doing things that people aren't uh, willing to risk in a lot of the other companies yeah yeah they're they're doing things in like not a quote-unquote company way they're doing things Almost in like an engineering design way, like like when we're like messing around with engineering designs, like like in uh, undergraduate engineering, usually you think of a design, you do some tests, it doesn't work, you go back to the drawing board, or you pick up like like the things that worked, the things that surprised you, and you restart, which is exactly what SpaceX is doing. And I think SpaceX has that advantage being a new company. I mean, like opening yeah. quite recently compared to some of these other companies. Yeah. You're not stuck with following heritage. Yeah, yeah, just because, yeah. Well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, it's like, well, why don't you fix it? Like, exactly, <laughs> why not? Right? Exactly. Like it. Yeah. It's not broke, but it's it's really old and rust and like yeah. It's like violently rusting. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. So, like, 
apart from all those successes that we have, there have been major accidents in this space industry with significant economic downsides. For example, a Challenger space shuttle disaster occurred in January 28th of 1989. This was one of the orbit. I think it was 86. Yes, yeah, yeah, sorry, 86. It's okay, you flip it upside down, it's a nine. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of just, you know, anyways. So unfortunately, this tragic accident resulted in the loss of all seven members of the crew. There was a really major failure in the O-rings, which held the right rocket booster together. These O-rings were designed to prevent hot gases from escaping from the rocket's booster. However, that launch happened on an unusually cold morning. It was a cold day. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the O-rings lost their elasticity, which allowed the hot gases to escape from the, from the right booster. And approximately 77 seconds after liftoff, the entire shuttle broke apart and it dis disintegrated into midair. After this, the, the program was suspended for several months as review teams went in to figure out what went wrong and to ensure that the next flights that were coming on did not have the same tragic end. There was also another one, right? Columbia, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. So for more details about space failures, we also have a whole other episode on this. So it'll, it'll go through more of the technical details, especially with the O-ring that Yusuf was mentioning and what that really means. Like there's a whole other episode on that. But on on Challenger, actually, in terms of what the economic cost was, yes, it did pause the space shuttle program for a while. And it did kind of incur these additional costs for like the accident reviews and all of this. But it also just cost, in general, the U.S. nation $3.2 billion. And that's in terms of $1986. So you can probably project that to now. It's a lot higher. And that figure not only includes the tech reviews that had to happen and all that, but it also includes, you know, the cost of the shuttle that was lost because there were only five operational shuttles. So that was a whole, you know, vehicle that they lost. But it also includes the net worth of all of the astronauts who died in the accident. So that's something to note. And yeah, like there was also the Columbia accident. Again, uh, for details on that, we have the space failures episode. And that accident was February 1st, uh, 2003. So a little over 20 years ago now. And that also resulted in the loss of all seven crew members. And the issue over there was because of the uh, thermal protection tiles uh, on the bottom of the shuttle. It was basically the idea was it was struck by a piece of loose foam insulation during the liftoff. And so they were able to go up to space, complete their mission. But on the way back, that system failed. And then the like they never made it back. So after the incident, all shuttle flights were grounded for over two years while they had to do all these safety enhancements and implement these procedures. That investigation cost over $400 million. And eventually the final report revealed that the space shuttle just downright is unsafe. And so that study eventually by the time like they still did a few more flights afterwards but eventually it was one of the big drivers for canceling the entire program in 2011 because the cost it would take to improve the safety on all of the shuttles across all all of its aspects just wasn't worth it and they were like you know what maybe it's time to retire this and see what happens next and this is what i was alluding to near the beginning of the episode when we first mentioned the shuttles is that just this like these couple of accidents had a huge, huge impact because imagine if this had never happened or if it didn't cost that much or whatever. 
we might still be flying space shuttles today. We wouldn't have SpaceX the way that we have today. We wouldn't have all these other companies that are starting to come into the commercial field because it was it was the fact that this got canceled that the commercial industry started to grow because otherwise it would have still been like a NASA party and only a NASA party. So that's very, very interesting how these things trickle down and create the environment that we have now. So this brings us to uh, the economic drivers in the government institutions. So we've talked about the history, some of the accidents, some of the big projects, some of the the smiles, the frowns, all of that. Now over to the main character, I'd say, is NASA. So they employ like roughly eighteen to 19,000 people. The main character. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I mean, they are. Anyways, uh, they employ roughly eighteen to 19,000 people directly. Their total uh, finances are uh, available to them are roughly $32.4 billion for 2023, um, which the agency plans to spend $20 uh, billion with an extra 22 uh, or an extra $12 billion, sorry, of headroom. As we've seen by some of our examples before, usually a lot of these projects tend to go way over budget. However, although this might seem like a lot, this is only 0.2% of the U.S. federal budget. From that money, they have like roughly $8 billion on deep space exploration, $2.5 billion for the new SLS, $3.23 billion for Artemis. NASA reports an economic output of $71 billion in 2021, which is triple than its budget that year, which is amazing. If, if any company had three times the amount of profit as an investment, I think that would be a a great company, right? Yeah, NASA is definitely the main character. And then it's, you know, younger uh, sibling or cousin. CSA is whatever, like the Robin is, to, uh, to NASA's Batman. Yeah, it's the Robin to <laughs> Batman or something, yeah. So the, the CSA, well, this is this is uh, interesting to us because this is actually our money. It, it was funny because I, I had this realization. I did, a, I did a short internship at the CSA a couple years ago. Oh. And I realized, I was like, oh my goodness, everyone is paying my <laughs> salary right now. Yeah. <laughs> And I would like tell my friends, I'm like, you're paying me <laughs> because it's your money. Which That's is really kind funny. of an obnoxious thing to do. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, do you see that Tim um, you just bought? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, th- this one, even though it's uh, not as, as big a player as NASA, it's, it's relevant to us because it is our money. So their total budgetary expenditure forecasted for the 2022-2023 year was $388 million. So you'll notice this is on the order of millions which is not like NASA, who's on the order of billions. So that's something something to recognize. So that number jumps for the next year. It's jumping up to $537 million. And that's for several different reasons. For instance, the CSA is hiring a lot more, specifically because of the Canadarm3 project, which is relevant for the Lunar Gateway that's going up soon, as well as increased student internships throughout the year as well. The CSA didn't used to give out that many internships, but now they give out a lot. So if you are interested, look into that, definitely. As a whole, because we gave you the percentage for NASA, NASA's out of the entire U.S. budget was 0.2%. Over here, we've got that the CSA projected budget is about $537 million, whereas the entire Canadian government budget is $432 billion. So I can't do the math in my head right now, but it's not a big percentage <laughs> at all. It's probably less even than... NASA's percentage. So those are just some numbers to throw out there at you. And we're only giving you the details on NASA and the CSA over here, but there's lots of other government agencies in the the sector as well. So ESA, the European Space Agency, is a big one. JAXA, the Japanese uh, Space Agency, the Chinese Space Agency as well. 
of course, Roscosmos, the Russian uh, space agency, even lots of new players come into the game. There's the Indian Space Agency. We've got UAE as well. So, you know, kind of different players coming to the game for different reasons. And I know you had something to add on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I find China as a, as a really inspiring like player in this whole thing as International Space Station is quite egotistical for calling itself the International Space Station. But as soon as the U.S. decides that like they don't that that they're having like trade beef with with China, China goes and decides to make its own space station, which I think is quite inspiring in a way. And yeah, right. Like <laughs> I'll just go do my own thing. Yeah, and when it comes to other space agencies, there's a lot of news coming right now when it comes to national space agencies. Like for example, Saudi Arabia and and uh, South Korea are partnering. Uh, which is great because you see Saudi Arabia with a lot of money and Korea with a lot of great technology. On top of that, the U.S. and Australia are making deals, which allows um, us, uh, American planes to launch from Australian spaceports. One example that I that I'm aware of all the top, off the top of my head of one of these like newer space agencies and their achievements are the UAE Space Agency. Recently, they launched their own Mars satellite, which is going to be orbiting Mars and taking measurements and data, which will hopefully in the future help out with the human colonization of Mars, which is very inspirational as it shows a promising future for the future of the space industry, especially in the public sector. And we like to see when, when governments are also taking this as a priority, not just the people. So speaking about the public sector and it's, I guess, complement the private sector, we're going to be moving on right now to the economic drivers in the private sector. With the private sector and their capitalist or or like their sometimes government-funded companies being the heart of today's economics. And mm-hmm. I think we have an, an amazing uh, opportunity to hear from Theo, considering that she <laughs> just left her PEY at MDA. So if you can start us off with MDA. Yeah, sure. We're just kind of going to touch on some of the big players in in terms of industry. So not government agencies, but industry. And like Yusuf said, they could be funded by the government. They could also be privately funded, whatever it may be. But folks that are kind of doing things outside of uh, the government. So yeah, we'll, we'll start with MDA. I did do my professional experience year or PUI there. I still work there part-time, actually, wow. as well. So. Yeah, I'm just stressed and blessed. So <laughs> a bit of a compliment. But yeah, the, this company has been around for a while under, under uh, you know, the name MDA, but it kind of acquired uh, different uh, companies as it went along. So it started off like in BC, Canada, just doing like space technology generally, and then it was acquiring robotics companies, right? And then it acquired satellite companies and all of this, and it kind of expanded into what it is now, which is a huge player and probably the biggest space company in Canada right now. So some of the big developments would be like the radar satellites, which is huge for Earth observation. And that was a contract for the Canadian Space Agency. Also Canadarm1, which was the arm on the shuttle. Canadarm2, which is currently operational on the International Space Station and currently working on Canadarm3, which is going to be the arm on the Lunar Gateway Station upcoming. So in terms of financial results, if you're interested in that kind of thing, <laughs> we have all these like quarterly town halls where they tell us all of these numbers. They don't mean much to me, but I'm sure it's interesting to someone. But the revenue is on the order of 
almost $200 million. So that's the 2023 financial results. So, hey, you know, that that's pretty interesting. Like compared to the other companies, it's definitely up there. Um, and you'll see some other ones. They, they get different kinds of contracts. They're also, maybe they have more recurring payments, less recurring payments. Sometimes they just get one big contract. Sometimes they don't. So there's a lot when it comes down to strategy. And MDA is currently doing this thing where they want to get involved in different sectors. So I think lots of people know MDA as a robotics company, but there's actually a whole lot else going on because it's not very often that someone wants a Canadarm, right? So you can't just rely <laughs> yeah. on selling Canadarms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I actually didn't know that the Canadarm and the Canadarm 2 was made by MDA. Like when it was, I'm going to say marketed because I feel like that's how it, it, it came across. But like when it was taught to me when I was in middle school, they were like, wow, this is like like the pride of Canada. We got, like, we helped to like make this thing that's like right now fixing the space station and whatever. And I was like, wow. And I think like that was my first experiences with like, like the space as a, as a kid. And then for me to grow up and to realize that was not done by the government, but by a private <laughs> company makes me realize that like, like capitalism works. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's true. I think anyway, most people yeah. don't know that it, it was made by MDA, but I think, I think it's starting to become more common knowledge, but... Yeah, yeah. That moves us on to Magellan Aerospace. They were founded in the 1930s when AV Row Canada was established. Over the years, this company evolved and became Magellan Aerospace. Their corporate headquarters are located not too far away from, from my, my hometown, actually, in Mississauga. And they have many different facilities around the world, such as in, in the US or Europe or India, etc., and they're currently known for manufacturing a wide range of aerospace components and systems, many of which are used in military and commercial aerospace applications. They are also involved in communications and Earth observation satellites. And onto the fun part for our finance nerds, reported in the second quarter of 2023, they had a revenue of $220 million with a gross profit of $23 million and net income, which was a loss of roughly $2 million and yeah, which is actually quite significant. I did not know that this company had this much revenue coming from their military and commercial aerospace applications. They must be involved in a lot of the behind the scenes stuff that we don't see. Like we usually just see like Boeing or Airbus and we assume like those, they create everything, but it's obviously like they probably outsourced a lot of things from companies like this. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, moving on, as we go through our list of prominent Canadian companies, is Telesat. So this one was also established in the late 60s as a commercial company with a mandate to provide satellite communication services to Canada. So they're pretty huge. They actually, I think, just made a deal recently with MDA, so some cool work coming along. And they their report for the third quarter of 2023 was a revenue of $175 million. So that's actually a decrease of 3% or $5 million from 2022. They, but their operating expenses have also decreased by about the same, same amount. And they had a net loss of about $3 million. So that's third quarter of 2023. So again, another huge player. Satellites are very important. And yeah. Yeah, well, that moves us on to another satellite company, GHGSAT. They actually came to the University of Toronto last year for a talk. So I have personally like like heard from them as well, which is very exciting to to be talking about them here as well. They actually focus on monitoring and measuring greenhouse gas emissions from industrial facilities. 
whether that be like power plants or oil and gas installations. And their mission is usually to help reduce greenhouse uh, gases and combat climate change by providing actual real data to governments. Like a lot of times governments will say they will impose carbon tax, which is like, which is fun to say on paper and it's very optimistic. It's not really possible or it's not really easy to tell exactly how much carbon certain companies use. So GSG sat, they launched their first satellite in 2016 and they now have nine satellites in orbit. Mm -hmm. They have three new satellites scheduled to launch by the end of this year and another four satellites scheduled to launch next year. They help to mitigate 5.6 million tons of carbon dioxide from industrial facilities, which is about the equivalent of 1.2 million gas-powered cars driven for one year, which is not a small amount. And as of July of 2023, they have acquired a funding of 44 million US dollars from a uh, investment firm in Quebec and some other investment firms, which includes BMO, the Japan Energy Fund, and so on. And since its inception, they have raised more than $126 million since 2011. I feel like this company is, is set to grow a lot, especially as countries in the area um, and who are investing in this company start to move away from fossil fuels and towards renewables. Yeah. And Katan, one of our other hosts, he actually did his PUI at GHG set. So that was pretty cool. And we had an interview with someone from there in the first season. So go listen to that. We're just plugging everything over here. But moving on to maritime launch services. And this is an interesting one. You don't hear about this one often, but they're actually poised to build Canada's first domestic commercial spaceport which is meant to be in Nova Scotia. So this could be huge. Like, even though it's not a significant player on the market right now, if things go well after several years, that spaceport is expected to host, you know, multiple launches a year, which would create a lot of job opportunities, lots of investment opportunities. And it's also something that Canada has been missing, you know, like our own launch facility. And I guess the next step from there, and I've been saying this for so long, is that we need rockets. Like Canada needs to make rockets, but we don't do that which makes us kind of like a piggybacker because we always have to piggyback on other people's missions because we can't launch ourselves. But that's a whole other conversation. But that construction phase uh, is projected to add $143 million to Nova Scotia's economy, which is huge. That's really nice. And the operations are projected to add $300 million to Canada's annual GDP, uh, boosting the revenue to the government by more than $100 million. So just just think about, you know, the the kinds of things that this can do, even though we it's not a huge player yet, but that's uh, that's a really big leap uh, for Canada if all goes well. Yeah. Um, well, con- continuing on, we move on to Kepler Communications. Actually, a telecommunications company based in Toronto. They facilitate real-time continuous connectivity in space, not unlike Starlink, actually, from SpaceX. They deliver on-orbit data at quote-unquote light speed with a satellite constellation acting at internet exchange points for low latency, high throughput, space-to-space data. Which So this company was founded by in 2015 by UFT graduate students, mm-hmm. which is very interesting and very inspirational. They have secured funding to the level of roughly $16 million in 2018, further $60 million in 2021, $92 million as recently as 2023. Company has raised more than two hundred dollars in equity since twenty sixteen. Pardon? Yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Did I say twenty million? They, no, you said they raised two hundred dollars. I was like, oh, that's cute. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. 
It's like a lemonade stand. They're like, yeah, hey, exactly. we, we have some space. $200 from a lemonade stand is pretty good, not going to lie. But anyways. I mean, on a hot summer day, yeah. I mean, supply and demand. Yeah. And I, I were like, like, they are being foreseen to be a very potent player in the Canadian space market as they aspire to to into a niche that has not been fully developed yet. And especially in Canada, where some of the northern provinces might not have that good connection to Wi-Fi. And rather than relying on the sole current, quote unquote, like major provider of like space internet space, like like from SpaceX and their Starlink, Kepler Communications could offer like a different option in the market and compete really well. Yep. It's huge. Okay, moving on uh, to ABB. So ABB is a leading electrical and automation technology company. They have a branch in Canada as well, so that's what we're talking about specifically. They're very important for space because they do a lot of specialized remote sensing instruments. And a lot of what the Canadian space industry does is actually like more science or Earth observation missions. So ABB is a huge player because they'll provide things like camera systems, multi or hyperspectral imagers, spectrometers, simulators and all this. So they have a huge global presence um, because, again, they've got branches all over the place with over uh, 105,000 employees in total. In Canada, they've got a little over 3,000 employees. Um, and the part of the business that covers space applications has generated a revenue of about $412 million Canadian. So that one's huge. And we'll talk about one last one because it wouldn't be a complete Canadian economy talk without Canadensis. And this one's cool because they're also a newer player to the game. But they very recently, like just no, I think like fall of last year, I think it was November, won uh, a $43 million contract to build the first lunar rover for Canada. So that could be huge. Um, and it's meant to launch potentially as early as uh, 2026. And it's designed to be operated remotely from Earth, carry a suite of science instruments to a landing site uh, somewhere near the moon's south pole. So I know that eventually we're going to do um, an episode about rovers. So maybe you'll hear about this one again. But this is another player coming up to the Canadian game. And now we move on to the U.S. space market as kind of our last big topic for this episode before we conclude. So let's, we, we've been talking about SpaceX this whole time, but let's talk a bit more about them. Go for it. So finally, we move on to like, like the SpaceX, the one that we've all been waiting for. Yes. Not too much about it, as most people know about it, but a quick rundown. SpaceX is a company that builds rockets with the capability to take different payloads and passengers into low Earth orbit. They have been specializing in making uh, reusable rockets, having successfully surpassed six, uh, 60 reusable rocket launches through their Falcon program. They are currently working on their satellite internet company, as we previously mentioned, with their Starlink, which is almost, for those of you that don't know, a massive constellation of and collection of satellites which will orbit the Earth and talk to each other to give low latency, <laughs> high-speed data yes. almost <laughs> almost anywhere in the world. And all you need to buy is one of their fancy satellite things and a subscription. So they employ over 12,000 people and earn an annual revenue of $2 billion, which, as we are about to see, is pretty significant compared to a lot of the other aerospace companies we're going to mention. Yeah, like if you think back to all the Canadian players we mentioned, they all of their revenues were on the order of millions. SpaceX yeah. is on the order of two billion, so which is nuts. Something to be learned over there. They're also they're also fairly new, so just think about like, that. I re I remember back, a time um, before SpaceX. Like, isn't that crazy? 
Yeah, same. Like, I'll, like, like I remember the time where like basically doing this and actually like throwing ourselves back. The I think it was the James Webb Telescope. Was it was given one billion to three billion budget for the whole thing, and now SpaceX makes two billion every year, which yeah. just puts into perspective yeah. <laughs> like like how big SpaceX has really gotten and their influence on the market that their like annual revenue is more than like, like a team yeah. of like international researchers yeah. gave for a project that spanned 21 years yeah um, that's actually a really crazy. good analogy to just put it into perspective wow. yeah oh my goodness well moving on we'll talk about boeing so boeing's huge we mentioned them just a couple times already so they don't only do airplanes they also do space system products They've got customers in over 150 countries. They're one of the top U.S. exporters as well. They employ more than 140,000 people across the U.S. And they also have offices in 65 countries. So they, they've also got a pretty big revenue. But I want to put this into perspective is that they also do more than just space. They also do planes. So their ending September 30th, 2023 revenue was over $75 billion dollars. But that's mostly coming from the planes, just to put it into perspective. So another big player in the industry. Yeah, and then we go on to the controversial Lockheed Martin. They're not only a uh, military company. However, they do have $27 billion in sales where, like from tactical aircraft, airlift aircraft, and like other aeronautical research. So not only military stuff. From their missiles and fire control stuff, like their terminal high altitude area defense system, their Pac-3 missiles, just to name a few, in 2022 had 11.3 billion dollars in sales. I'm sure in 2023, with with the spike of uh, international conflicts that went up, I remember I saw somewhere that th- the stock prices of of these military aerospace companies absolutely like rocketed. As more people mm. start to yeah, as more people start to invest in these companies because they yeah. assume that these companies are going to have more of an like yeah, are going to be more involved stuff, in getting yeah. more revenue which kind of makes you question about society like even though we're going to sit on our soapbox and talk about yeah all these problems people are still going to invest in what they the think day, is going to make money yeah cash in cash out yeah exactly that's all it is on top of that they have around 116 employees worldwide and 375 facilities in 2022, they had net sales of $66 billion. So the things that I talked about before and some more with a net profit of $5.7 billion. All right. Moving on to Northrop Grumman. So what do they do? They manufacture in like they manufacture defense and commercial aerospace electronics and IT products primarily. They're also a key supplier to Boeing's military aircraft programs. They've got about 95,000 employees. And for 2022, they had about $36.6 billion in sales. So if we break that down in different areas, space systems specifically, they've got about $12.3 billion. Mission systems is about $10.4 billion. Aeronautics is about $10.5 billion. Its defense is a little lower, so that's at about $5.6 billion, but puts it all into perspective as well as another company that also provides military and defense products on top of doing space and avionics things. Yeah, and like one interesting thing about them is they were the prime contractor and they currently maintain uh, the U.S.'s B-2 stealth bomber fleets, which Mm -hmm. is one of the most notorious planes 
And uh, even though I do try to consider myself as an ethical and moral person, I am a bit of a nerd when it comes to uh, these military planes, as yeah. a lot of the innovations that we have now in our current planes comes from these different countries trying to one-up each other when it comes to their military prowess. Yeah, the most advancement happens. Yeah. It's always for military purpose, unfortunately. Yeah, and like, if we go back to NASA for a bit, although people were complaining about it, NASA fundamentally is a research company for the U.S. government. They're not necessarily a let's go to space and have fun and, and explore company. They're, like Their primary goal when the U.S. invests in them is to, uh, I guess, output innovation that will trickle down to private companies, U.S. government, one of the major examples off the top of my head is GPS. We use that all the time. We mm-hmm. like like it's, it's almost impossible to imagine a world without a GPS. Planes wouldn't be a thing. Boats like would take forever to arrive as, as as the captains of these boats would be like trying to navigate using the stars or whatever. Yes. So there is a lot to thank from what is usually put as like, the evil side of things, which is like military. There is yeah. there is a lot this of benefits. Yeah. So this moves us on to Blue Origin, which, as some of you may know, was started by Amazon's founder. Which I must say is quite crazy. Like it's the store so is just like an, yeah, yeah. Like as a as an online like selling store to have that much money to start a space company is kind of kind of mind boggling. Yeah, I don't know if you've watched Wally. I, I'm sure you've yes, watched Wally, but you know how there's a one company like B BNL that owns everything, and they also yes. have like control of all the yes. spaceships. Like Amazon's gonna be that. Like <laughs> like they they have like books and and yeah. streaming services. Anyways. So similar to SpaceX and soon to be introduced Virgin Galactic, they're also devoting their research into reusable rockets um, that are safe and low cost and will serve customer needs. They hope to fly uh, not only astronauts uh, into space, but hopefully to have commercial flights to the regular public and in the future help to build space habitats. They currently employ around uh, 3,500 employees with a peak revenue of $43 uh, million in 2022. Some of their key uh, investors, this is going to sound interesting, are NASA and, wait for it, the United States Space Force, which could take Space a whole Force. episode by itself. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Which is so, there's, is so funny. There's, there's like a Netflix series on that as well, right? That's what I we're watched about. it. It's hilarious. It's Would so highly funny, recommend. Yeah. Yes. It's really good if you guys haven't watched it. But just to put it into perspective, their revenue, like I said, was $43 million in 2022. SpaceX had $2 billion. It's crazy. And one interesting thing, if, if you guys want to have a funny little laugh today, uh, if you look up Blue Origins, I think it was like New Shepard rocket ship. It's, it's a very suggestive looking ro- uh, oh. rocket ship, <laughs> which, which um, made a lot of rounds on the internet uh, with a lot of memes. I'm I'm like I'm sure you could this, you yeah. can you, you yeah, could yeah, it's a weird you could imagine where where we're going with this. I mean, you can look that up in your own time if you guys want to have a little giggle. Like, on, Moving on to, on to the to, other billionaire. Yeah, to a similar <laughs> case as Virgin Galactic, where people just I don't know they have big dreams, and I I, I big admire it. I feel I like know. billionaires are bored. So like they're like instead of spending because they have too much money. Like why buy a car? A car is only like most expensive yeah. cars are like five million, whatever. Oh but no, God. like they flex on each other with how fancy their rock, like with how big their rocket yeah. companies are. You know? I don't know. But I'm not complaining. I like space. So. Yeah, yeah, but it's 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 very entertaining to us. But it's crazy to yeah. think about someone who might not even have like an engineering background or anything who's just like, yeah, whatever. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, okay, yeah. sure. So yeah, Virgin Galactic is a very similar case. I think it's Branson, Richard Branson, 
who is like the owner of the Virgin Group. And they own a bunch of different kinds of businesses, but they also started Virgin Galactic. And their business strategy for is for providing affordable, safe, reliable, regular transportation to space. And so this is kind of a commercial space flight program. They want to expand their fleet so that they can increase their flight rate, have low operating costs, and leverage proprietary technology and deep manufacturing experience. So for 2022, they had a revenue of about $2.3 million with a high expenses, about $503 million in expenses. So they're, it looks like they're losing a lot, huge operating loss over there, almost $500 million. But their, their employee number has grown a lot. So from 2021 to 2022, they saw like a 40% growth. So they went from eight employees to almost 1,200. And their total funding is, is pretty high, 450-ish million dollars. And their key investors are like the Vanguard Group, BlackRock, Fund Advisors, so on and so forth. All the billionaires just coming to the table. Yeah. I do want to add one thing, though. When it comes to the companies that are investing, as far as I'm aware, the Vanguard Group and the BlackRock Fund Agency are huge investment companies that have their hands in a lot of different things. So the fact that they also have their hands in Virgin Galactic could signal that they see high potential in Virgin Galactic, especially with Virgin Galactic. I'm pretty sure even last week they had a launch. They had like five launches this year with last week. Yeah, and like, recently, like, yes. Yeah, I really encourage you to go watch some of their videos of their launches. It's amazing how they have like that really long plane that's hugging on, on, to, on to the mini plane underneath it and the plane goes into space. It's amazing. But also Vanguard and BlackRock. Do some research in, into those. Those are also huge companies. Yeah. Their portfolios are huge. So to see them invest in Virgin Galactic is also really... I just... It's an, it's an interesting uh, development. Yeah. yeah. I just Googled Virgin Galactic and the first thing that came up was Virgin Galactic stock surges nearly 20% after announcing a plan for cost savings. That's interesting. I mean, yeah, because like they have a lot of costs. They need to lower some of those costs. Yeah. Wow, they went up, wow, 20%. Yeah. And last, but certainly not least, we have Rocket Lab. So they're a launch and space systems company. They work with satellite design and manufacture, mostly with space software and components and reliable launch services. Their most used rocket is the Electron, which is actually the second most frequently launched US rocket, which is super, super impressive. So they're currently trying to work on a next-gen large launch vehicle called the Neutron. Which will, pro, which will provide vital data and services to Earth. They have currently carried out 39 launches to date with 170 satellites deployed, many different launch pads, and they have customers such as NASA, the US Space Force, DARPA, etc. They are headquartered in California. They do have mission centers around the world. However, they also have one right here in Toronto, which is very interesting. So back to the finance, the finance nerds, their total revenue in 2022 was uh, 211 million compared to 2021, where it was 62 million. So that's a huge jump for them. their cost of revenue was 192 million, whereas it was 64 million in 2021. However, it is uh, visible to see that they're making, they're making a profit now. They were losing 2 million in 2021 and now they're gaining roughly 20 million and they currently have 14,000 employees well that was a lot of different companies and a lot of different things that we talked about there theo a lot of yeah. interesting things a lot of hope and inspiration for the future of the of, of the space industry 
Yeah. So yeah, we definitely did go through a lot. This is probably going to be a really long episode by the end of this. But I, I hope this is interesting to those of you who are really into the business side of things. It's it's not all about the technology. The technology is huge. But if you don't have good strategy to sell your technology, then your technology is not going to make it. And with something like the space industry, where you have to do a lot of convincing because it is high risk, but lots of people are starting to get into it. There also used to be very high resistance to doing anything because the government agencies kind of had the monopoly on the money and who's allowed to launch and why and how they have to do it. Like we were talking about strict processes and everything. But we're trying to, like right now, they're they're trying to reshape the game, like reinvent it. And we can just see the lessons learned from the beginning where we're spending $25 billion on the Apollo program to what we've got right now where we've got this diversification You've got so many different companies across all these different uh, countries. And we didn't even go through an exhaustive list. Like, this is, like, such a short list, yeah, yeah. even though we spent it's so long talking about it. Yeah, like, it, like yeah. there's so many other companies that we could be talking about, like, both like nationally. Like, we mainly stuck to U.S. and Canada. But I'm sure around the world there are a lot, a lot of different companies that are doing some things that we could not even imagine. I feel like uh, over the next couple of years, we're, we're bound to see a huge, huge, a boost in the whole space industry. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. So any last thoughts, Yusuf? Or thoughts? I mean, like, the last thing I want to add is maybe some of the reasons why governments, private sectors might even be investing in the space industry. As we already outlined before, government agencies tend to, to fund space programs almost as a research agency that will trickle down to the military and tech companies and our private companies will only invest in space technology and space innovation if profits them, which is why we're not really seeing much like interplanetary travel right now or seeing much space, like the space industry actually doing much outside of Earth. Most of it is testing in Earth, most of it is sending stuff to low Earth orbit as of now, even though space is very vast. And a big problem for that is because Let's say a company wanted to go down to asteroid mining, of course. Even if the asteroid was completely filled with gold or platinum, which we have found to exist, it might not even be worth it due to the fixed costs and associated with it. For example, the tech that we have to develop to reach the asteroid, to mine those materials, and to come back to Earth, stuff like that. But that can be a whole episode on its own about more of the nuances, why or why not, and the future of space economy. So thank you all for listening. Long episode, but I feel like we went on a nice ride together going through the history and the current state of drivers in space economics. Hopefully you can join us next where we're going to talk about perhaps rovers. Maybe. I don't know. I guess you're going to have to figure it out. Perhaps. Like you're going to have to check. Thanks for listening <laughs> and hope to have you on next time. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. You can follow us on Instagram at underscore the sound of space and LinkedIn at the sound of space. Continue the conversation and let us know your thoughts on all things aerospace. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the sound of space.